Hello and welcome to the second episode of 60 Minutes or Less, a new podcast from Vertecake for Breakfast. I'm Andy Hughes and I'm pleased as punch to present our second guest, Paul Hamley, drummer extraordinaire and in recent years the author of a number of award-winning books. Alongside brother Steve, Paul was the other famous Hanley that appeared in legendary Northern outfit The Fall, one of the many drummers in the lineup over the years. His shift behind the kit took place during the fruitful early 80s, one half of the band's classic two-drummer lineup, with appearances on such highly regarded records as Hex Induction Hour and Grotesque after the Gram. More recently, Hanley has taken to the drums again as part of House of All, a supergroup of ex-Fall members featuring brother Steve amongst others. Outside of drumming, Hanley has written a number of brilliant books, Leave the Capital, A History of Manchester Music in 13 Recordings, and Have a Bleeding Guest, The Story of Hex Induction Hour. In April 2024, Root Publishing are set to release a new collection from Paul, 16 Again, How Pete Shelley and Buzzcocks Changed Manchester Music and Me. It's a book that looks to explore the appeal of Buzzcocks and the influence of Pete Shelley on Manchester music and beyond. On a frosty morning in early December 2023, I visited Paul at home in Timperley to talk about the Buzzcocks and much more, starting, as all conversations should, on Timperley's most famous son, Frank Sidebottom. Enjoy. Paul, thanks very much for having me. Timperley, it's my first time coming here. Obviously very familiar though with Frank Sidebottom yeah. and little Frank, you know. Big, Frank Sidebottom and Little Frank. Yeah, big stars. Both from it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was hoping to go on a pilgrimage to the statue. I thought it would be, you know, in the... Well, it's a weird place, simply, because you've got the, the tram stops miles away from the village. Yeah. So we're about possibly halfway between the tram stop and the village, so you just carry on down that road. Yeah. This is great for the listener, this. You carry on down that road there, <laughs> and Frank's just on your right in front yeah. of the coffee. A perfect location to yes, possibly of course. as well. Was obviously you know we'll we'll talk about the Buzzcocks in a minute, but was you know Frank another big name in your world when you were growing up because he was quite a big thing in Manchester. Wasn't yeah, I mean God bless you for when you were growing up. I'm, 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 I, he was he was big in my world when I was an adult. <laughs> 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 yeah, I loved Frank Sidebottom. Yeah, we came to see him. Uh, he used to do this thing at um, Brooklyn's Trade and Labour, which is just down the road there. Between, oh, okay. Because yeah. I come well from Northern Moor, which is. The other side of the tracks, if you like, it's just within shot, so it's just about about three miles from here. Sure. So then, he used to do this thing, Brooklyn, which is like midpoint between here and there. So yeah, I knew all about Frank and Timberley, obviously, before I moved here. It wasn't the wasn't the main reason we moved here. But <laughs> that, <laughs> the bright lights of Timberley. That was it, yeah. But I mean, as I say, you know, we'd we'd move on to Buzzcocks, and you've got a new book coming out, sixteen again. How Pete Shelley and the Buzzcocks changed Manchester music and yourself. Yes, your passion comes across from your previous two books and the podcast that you do as well. Mm-hmm. You're obviously a huge music fan. But what was the driving force for this book in particular to focus just on you know the Buzzcocks, Pete Shelley? Because obviously with Leave the Capital, you'd focused on quite a number yeah. of bands that came through Manchester and the North. So. What was the what was the you know the factor in terms of that? Well, initially, my initial thing was that it seemed they seemed to be criminally unwritten about underwritten about mm. Buscocks. So there's there's one biography of them, the complete Buscocks. There's a book that Alma called Lou Shelley did, no relation, where she interviewed Pete about his songwriting, mm. which is a great book and it's you know if you want to get the, the handle on. But I didn't think there was any particularly great books written about. I mean, the, the biography's fine, but it's quite factual, as you would as you might expect. A bit dry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then Steve Diggle's got an autobiography. But I, I, if you compare them to, say, the Sex Pistols or Clash, there's hundreds hundreds of books about them. 
And I was obviously I was a massive fan of Buzzcocks. So initially, my idea was to write a biography, not as dry, a bit less dry than, but pretty much telling the story. But as I wrote it and corresponded back and forth to the publishers, it, it, it felt like I was pulling myself out of it really. Mm. When I I thought you know we agreed that I should write about it as, a, as a, how, how they affected me because they did because the big thing is when you're that age fourteen to sixteen yeah you and you have a favourite band that mean you know that you buy things when the day they come out and all that and you read everything you can about them and you try and meet them and all that stuff that was me and Buscox that was me between I mean pretty much fourteen to sixteen mm. so I thought that's an interesting so it's so it's both really so it's a biography and. Occasionally, I pop up in it, <laughs> and I, I can't write dispassionately about the music either for that from that period. So there's a lot of my opinion about what I think of songs and what you know. For sure, yeah. and I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. Really, you you kind of latch onto a band, don't you, when yeah. you're in your formative years? Yeah. So, do you think the Buzzcocks were one of your first? Real bands that you did latch onto when you were a teen, or you know, were yeah. you a big diehard Bay City Rollers fan? No, no, no. I <laughs> saw. For some reason, I was trying to work this out. The darts I got into. Do you remember them? Sort of like a sort of doo woppy kind of no. revivalist kind of thing. Yeah, the, don't bother looking for them. But uh, <laughs> I liked them for a bit. But but then Buzzcocks were the first one that I thought this this is it for me because they all all at the same time. The Fall, Joy Division, Buzzcocks were like three big Manchester bands, you know, and I loved all of them. Mm. But Buzzcocks for some reason was was kind of a more Visceral kind of thing. I really loved them. You know, that was they were like my band. I couldn't, have, I couldn't have done that about the fall really because I knew people in them. So that would have been a bit weird. And um, but no, Buscocks were just. And then Buscocks facilitated the fall and Joy Division as well. So they were the kind of apex of it really. In terms of that, was there much you know interaction between the fall and the Buscocks other than playing shows and such? So I read a great quote from Martin Brammer where he said that. Howard Devoto was in the crowd, you know, watching them at a gig, yeah. and Mark e. Smith pretty much put his finger virtually in his nose. So, was there much interaction between the two, or was it just a case of that classic thing of you're all playing in the same similar sort of? No, groups? I think I think Buscocks were really helpful towards the bands that came after them. You know, they gave they paid for the false first recordings. So the Bingo Masters EP that was paid for by Buscocks and well, Richard Boone. Uh, they, they, could, they, they couldn't afford to put it out, but they paid for the <laughs> recording and gave them the tapes for to then hawk around and sell to whoever could put them out. They gave Buscock support. So not just Buscock Joy Division, but right, got gigs right at the beginning. And people looked to the to Buscock for advice because nobody really knew what they were doing, you know. Mm. And Buscock seemed to... I mean, compared to the others they did, I'm sure they didn't know much about what they were doing, but, uh, you know, they, they put like you know they put the gig on, the Sex Pistols gig and the mm. Spiral Scratch... And they gave supports to Joy Division, they gave them the fall, John Cooper Clark was kind of helped into the to find that scene because he was playing working men's clubs and cabaret mm. and all that. And, and it was Buscocks who said, You should be playing punk gigs, you'd go down a storm. So yeah, no, they were they were I think they were massively influential on the whole of Manchester, really. Not just even not not just even Manchester music, I think the whole of the resurgence of Manchester could be traced back to them. So no, they they, they, they were definitely Helped out the fall. I mean, you can't always tell from the way Mark talks, but then you know that's the kind. Of, I think he respected them. I don't think he particularly liked the music, but I think he respected them and he respected Pete Shelley because you know and Howard Roll because you know intelligent guys. You know, I suppose yeah. It's a, you don't really need to like the music as such, do you? To no. Well, one of the things I make a point of in the book is that perversely one of the really big influences of Buscock was that 
they didn't say you had to sound like them. So one of their big influences that the three main Manchester bands don't sound anything like each other. You know, so it was but mm. punk. Punk was different in Manchester. I think because they brought the Sex Pistols up before and before all that nonsense with Bill Grundy. Punk was a thing that uh, certainly Pete Shelley and were happy to call themselves punks. It wasn't that kind of sort of uh, ridiculous sort of parody kind of thing. It was an important thing. It was an art movement. You know, it wasn't. It was this art design. And it was play any kind of music you want, do anything you want, be have any kind of sexuality you want. It was it was like a a movement, you know, a freedom with a lot of freedom to do whatever you wanted to do. So the the bands that follow them don't sound particularly sound like Buscocks. Uh, you know, there's no there's not like massive te- Buscocks don't. They did at first. They sounded a bit like Sex Pistols, but once mm. Pete took over, they didn't sound anything like them or anybody else as far as I can see. It's it always it's yeah. I suppose like you say that whole thing about the punk idea. It always makes me laugh when you see, you know, pictures of Marky Smith or the Buzzcocks particularly, yeah. and they're always dressed in like smart shirts mm. and you know, slacks and yeah, 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 the sort of shoes you'd wear on a night out or what have you, yeah. rather than this the parody almost yeah. like you say. And you touched on as well, you know, the whole the whole point about the book is you know explaining their unique and enduring appeal and saying that Shelley was so influential with yeah. you know, the resurgence of Manchester, and they obviously brought that show to the Lesser Free Trade Hall with yeah. Sex Pistols after going to see them in London. And you obviously touched on the debut EP as well. So yeah. those two pivotal moments, can you talk a bit about, you know, why they were so important to Manchester? Yeah. And One of the, uh, the, the last time I saw Pete Shelley was, he did this interview at um, Gorilla with Dave Aslam mm. and he was talking about his whole, uh, you know, the whole of his career. And I got a chance to ask the question and that was the question I asked in terms of cultural significance what do you think was more important, bringing the Sex Pistols here to Manchester or putting Spinal Scratch out? And the, uh, clearly, it's designed, it's an impossible question to answer, really, because they're both massive things, you know. Mm. You know, if you look at the impact of, like I say, I think it was different in Manchester. I think it was, it was healthier in a lot of ways and it was, it was certainly a lot more vibrant because that whole punk thing happened without Bill Grundy and without spitting and without all that. Well, there was a lot of spitting, but that, but, um, that was... It was seen as something more, a bit more cerebral, I think, a bit more, a bit more thoughtful, possibly. And then, but then, and then, spiral scratch. You, without that, you don't get rough trade. You don't get all. You know. I mean, it, it had been done before, but I think the the brilliant thing about spiral scratch was it it was successful on its own terms. You know, there wasn't. It was it went out there. They sold shed loads of them just by doing it. They didn't. I'm not thinking they, they thought for a moment it was going to be attacking the charts or anything like that. It was just to, basically to. Because I think they knew Howard was on his way, so they wanted to make it some kind of memento of what they thought was a fleeting kind of artistic movement, if you like. What was the? Because it seems like he left Devoto at like just as, as you say, the time mm. when it was. Yeah. What was the sort of? Well, I think, well, it, it was as with all these things. There's more than one reason. He, he wanted to finish his degree. He changed his degree twice, and I think he thought, "I've got to, I've got to get this finished," which. Fair play to him. Oh, right, his education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but I think the other thing was, he, I think he thought, this is about as far as you can take this, that kind of punk thing, that right. kind of, you know. Because they were very, if you listen to the really early Buscocks, he, he's definitely trying to ape Johnny Rotten, I think. Mm. But what's really interesting about that is it, it occurred to him a lot quicker than it occurred to Johnny Rotten himself that you, you're going to have to get out of this and try and do something else. You're completely, you know, shackled by the terms of this punk movement. The, or punk music, should I say, not the punk movement. This limited punk music that we've created here, 
we need to expand on it. But it didn't took Johnny Rotten another year and a half to, before he realised he had to do it. I mean, and they, they pretty much had the whole set by then, Sex Pistols. I think there were maybe two or three other songs they did in the whole of their career. But by the, t- by the end of 76, 77, that was it. They were done. But, he, he, you know, they limped on for a bit longer. Whereas Buscox... And, and it would have been criminal, I think, if Pete Shelley hadn't been a frontman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, but, you know, they, he, he could have stayed in the band and they could have expanded the sound quite easily. But it, well, I think it would have been a real shame if Pete hadn't became from on his own band. And what is it you think about Pete that did hook people so much? And, you know, because obviously as a vocalist and as a lyricist, it's so, it catches, you know, it's so catchy, isn't it? Yeah. What do you think about it? Is it just the catchiness or is there a I think of... I think his ability to combine catchiness with lyrics that, on one level, sound like you know love love songs for want of a better word, which mm. we, but they're really not. If you if you, they're all about unhealthy relationships <laughs> or people. You know that sort of period of his time. They're all not quite right. You know, um, but his ability to do that and his ability to put himself in the headspace of a sixteen-year-old, you know, confused, which he was able to do for years because he was going back and find you know using songs that he wrote when he was 16 mm. all the way through his career i mean up until you know the 90s or whatever he could he would go could go back and sing songs that articulated something that's almost impossible to articulate you know that kind of angst and nonsense that you feel at 14 to 16 and he could he could make that and it was, and it was never it wasn't like jilted john it was it wasn't um a parody or it wasn't it was you know it was and it was very clever and very articulate and it was you could get it under the ring. Much like, you know, there's a lot made of that, and I make a lot of it in the book. His lyrics are, you know, not gender-specific, or not he, not you, or not she, or whatever, you know, which was years ahead of its time, to be honest, the ideas he had on gender as a construct, and, you know, it's a movable feast, if you like. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, I think he was... I think he deliberate, And his, his whole thing was self-deprecation, you know. He didn't go on about how great he was all the time. He didn't have to, and, and you know. Uh, I, I think he's, he was such a brilliant songwriter, uh, but the way he could smuggle really clever lyrics into really genius pop songs. Which is the perfect yeah. pop music, yes. really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. So the first time you yourself were in the studio with The Fall, yeah. um, I saw there was a thing where you snuck in uh, buzzcocks, you know, like John yeah. Patton or what yeah. have you, that most people missed for 40-odd years. No, well, not everybody's missing. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, it was kind of in there, you know, for yeah, people yeah. to find, and it's still... Yeah. So, obviously, that was like a huge... I mean, it was ridiculous, and no one was in there for the spot. It was like, you know... Historians, possibly. Yeah, the, the Fall in Five guy, maybe. But was was that, like, one of the reasons that you wanted to go into music as well, yourself as a drummer, or...? Well, he was a bit of a hero of mine, John Marr. Not only, he was a, a phenomenal drummer, but he went to the same school as me. He left at 16 to John Busco, so I left the same school St Bede's to join the fall mm. so everything and he looked great and he was a brilliant drummer I, I just thought you know, it was him and uh, I just thought he was fantastic so it, the fact that my favourite band had my favourite drummer in was quite good I mean there was there's a lot of great drummers about at that time Clem Burke and Paul Cook you know all those but um, I, I just thought he was the perfect <laughs> the perfect package really <laughs> that, that's what I want to do I like the idea that you can, if you boil it down, it's just, oh, the boy who was in the year above me. Yeah. Looked great, went yeah. on to do great things. Yeah, because I remember that. That was like the kind of, I mean, it's probably not quite as I remember it, but there was like a sort of buzz around the school when buscocks were on top of the pop. They used to come in, you know, 
He went to, he went to St. Pete's, yeah. And the, if there's a, they had this, called the Our Lady Corridor, where you used to hang out and eat your sandwiches at lunch. I mean, there was, you know, them, you know them old school pictures you get with the, like, where they, they do them in a crescent, but it comes out flat and there's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. 600 people I thought, I thought he was in one of them so we found him <laughs> and then we, we found out he lived he lived just around the corner from school so we went to his house at the lunchtime knocked on the door he answered we had a chat with him he signed Spiral Scratch and he said you want some badges he went upstairs got his badges out of his bedroom and I was thinking he's got his kit up there because I had my kit in my bedroom you know, I was thinking look at this he's like his mum and dad he's got his kit up in the drum kit in the, in the bedroom just like me but then I knew that again. That I think that was a lot of the part of Buscock's appeal for me was they weren't threatening, and you know, life was threatening enough in, in Manchester in nineteen seventy eight. You know, so I didn't need it from my favourite man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose people do get off on that. You know, that whole affront of yeah. Well, I, 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 the way I put it in the book is Sex Pistols and the Clash will let me beat me head in. You know, whereas Buscock's look like they make me a cup of tea. You know? <laughs> I like the idea, it's, I think it's easy to forget that, because I've lived here a decade plus, and like, it's easy to forget that you, you could, I suppose, just go round to someone's house, and they yeah, might, yeah, they might yeah. just open the door and, you know... Yeah, it's, it's, well, but I mean, you know, um, when uh, John Marr put the advert into looking for a band, he wasn't on the phone, so when I would devote, I thought, oh, well, have I got this guy, he had to, you know, get on a bus from wherever <laughs> he was in Salford, get on, come down and knock on his door and say, do you fancy joining our band, you know... So uh, it's, it's incredible, you know, it sounds like 200 years ago, doesn't it? It's amazing, it's the same with, you know, the Smiths, isn't it? Yeah. Really, like Johnny Marr going around. Going around to the house, yeah, yeah, and that's just, what you did. And just knocking on and, mm-hmm. yeah, I suppose it's completely... It's modesty coming out to play. <laughs> Alexandra Park, that was another thing that I discovered yeah. uh, literally yesterday. I used to live around the corner for there for years. And right. Just, you know, went round it every lunchtime when I was working from home. And it seems amazing to me that in 78, Buscock's played it alongside a number of bands. Yeah. One thing that's amazing is the fact that there was a huge anti-racism march yeah. all the way from Strange Ways. Yeah. Because that's not a small walk, is it? No, no, it's a, few, it's a fair bit. It's a fair bit. It's Ten miles, or yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that was a big event. That's another one of the big events in Manchester. That it gets written about slightly less than the free to at all. But so for the for our younger readers, there was a lot of nasty. There was a big element of rising up with Giggs' National Front, mm. and then you had that prick Clapton giving his comments, and that was what, what kind of triggered the, uh, the Anti-National League and the Rocky Against Racism to start. So there was a big one in London. I don't know if you've seen the film Rude Boy, but um, there's a big one in London where the Clash played, and that's this film of that. And then just a bit later than that, probably the next summer, they did one in Manchester, the same. And it was massive, you know, and... It, uh, the, it was massive for me because I used to cross Alexander Park every day to, so to get to St B's, the school I went to. I used to get the bus to one side of the park and walk across it and risk life and limb walking across it and risk getting beaten up, which happened a couple of times. Uh, well, someone said, I thought it was great on Twitter, someone said the one time crossing Alexander Park where you didn't think you were going to get, you know, your That's exactly it. I mean, that was like a moment, you know, and it was a gloriously sunny day. And it was the first time I'd seen Buscocks. And it's just one of those days, you know, one of those days when you're at 14 and it's just, this is just the best day ever, you know. And it was, it was, they were, and there was no chance then Buscock would do, that was it. After that gig, I just, they would, I, I just loved everything about them, you know. It's kind of the perfect, yeah, like you say, like the encapsulation of everything in that day just yeah. sounds absolutely perfect. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. I take it, you know, noise levels don't crack the Caribbean carnival that they have these days. I don't think so, no, 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 but, um, no, but it 
wasn't somewhere that ever had gigs, you know. No, yeah. and I mean, I don't think outside of Carnival that they have music there. No, 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 it's not, it's not a place. I mean, there wasn't that many outdoor gigs, you know, there was very few, it wasn't like, I mean, there was Glastonbury, but Glastonbury, even then, it was a ramshackle kind of thrown together thing. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a thing, really. I mean, you might get the Who playing the odd football, Charlton football ground or whatever, but that outdoor gig thing wasn't something that happened very often. So it was, it was a, it was a big deal, I guess. Obviously, as I say, for me, I only found out about it yesterday. And you do say that Buzzcocks, for some reason, aren't written about as much yeah. when they are so important in Manchester. Yeah. What do you think that is? And, you know, why isn't this huge event that took place in Alexandra Park a bigger thing? You know, is it... it I don't know. I don't know. It? I don't know, really. Because it, I, I think Buzzcocks were kind of victims of their own kind of self-deprecation in a way. They weren't always talking themselves up as massively important, mm. which, you know, the clash in the sessions <laughs> did a lot, you know. They, yeah. You know, they, they, they got this kind of, you know... But Buscot kind of just quietly got on with it, really. I don't know why the Rock Against Racism thing isn't bigger, because I, 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 think, I think that shaped the way a lot of people thought. I think, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the fact that it managed to move... New wave, which it was by then, away from going to lurching to the right, right back over to the left. It was an amazing thing, you know, and a very, very important. I think that that happened because God knows where we'd be. <laughs> it's bad enough anyway, isn't it? But um, yeah, the, I think you know you need these resets every now and again where people start thinking, hang on, what if, what if instead of just looking at let's look at the bigger picture and try and help people out a bit, you know, which it sounds like an old, you know, I'm a, an old man, but. Uh, <laughs> An old fart, but I think you know it's massively important that every now and again people stop thinking. Well, let's stop and think about how we can, how what's wrong here, and let's do something about it and make things better for everybody. You know? Yeah, it's it's. I saw someone put you know there was a video about you know the day and there was something about whenever there's periods of hardships, people look for someone to yeah yeah to not pick on, but pretty much use yeah, as a scapegoat. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're absolutely right yeah. in that respect. You mentioned before the the badges and such. Mm-hmm. The cover art for the book is styled on the Orgasm Addict colour scheme. It is, yeah. And you actually got Malcolm Garrett for the book, didn't yeah. you? How much of the appeal in respect of that was aesthetically driven with the band? Massive part of it for me. The, the whole... I, I, for me, Malcolm Garrett was like the fifth member in my head. You know, right. The sleeves were... I meant part of the band. Not Maybe not Malcolm wasn't, but the sleeves were like the fifth member, if you like, you know. Because I just thought... Cause, the first one I saw was another music in a different kitchen. Steve Broy on the day came out, and it was just such a lovely package, you know. They had silver and everything was thought about, you know. It wasn't like the it wasn't like the United Artists generic label. They had their own label on the record. It was in a black sleeve. Everything looked perfect. It came in a carrier bag with product written on it, so they weren't <laughs> having a wink at the fact that it was still a consumer product, but actually. It was. I mean, everything about it was really clever, and that carried on all the way through the till they split up in eighty one. Or each sleeve was slightly different. You know, there was never. A, it, they all followed on, but they weren't the same. And there was thought, and they were linked into the song. And I, I just thought everything about it was just perfect, really. Mm. And that logo is amazing, isn't it? You know, and the good the good thing about them were again they were nothing like the Sex Pistols. They weren't all that torn up newspaper stuff, which was quite clever when Jamie Reid did it, but it. Very quickly became a bit of a mess, didn't it? Where those buscocks were really, I mean, gorgeous packages. I think the records clearly with the logo as well. That's a good point because it's very like 
stylistic and yeah. artistic, isn't it? And yeah. you can tell that it's of her time, but also very yeah. current and modern. Yeah. yeah. You know, when I was younger, if there was a CD come out or what have you, you'd have to buy the CD and then find out that it was shit. Or, you know, <laughs> do you know yeah, what I mean? yeah, yeah. Was, obviously not with Buzzcocks, I imagine, but was that a factor in terms of your music listening, your music buying as well? Just the fact, you know, the overall image? I don't know because I can't separate the two because it, I, it wasn't like I'd heard it wasn't like I'd seen them live and then the records were a surprise. The record was the first thing I saw I, mm. and I bought the records, but it was all it, it was all there right at the beginning for me because because I started with the first album and then obviously went back as quickly as I worked forward. So it, I, I can't separate the two. And that's another thing I can't separate the band from the from the graphics because they were just like I say part of it from the day minute one really. Mm. So. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the badges themselves, I think it's great with this pre-order of the book that it comes with a complimentary yeah, badge. Yeah. And I saw that people are chuffed up about that on yeah, socials, yeah. you know. They even had the carrier bag, which you talk about, which I imagine these days might not be so popular with the world we live in. Yeah. It seems to be a side of fandom, I think. And, and when I say I think, because, you know, I'm sure there are scenes where mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff is still prevalent today, but it does seem a side of fandom that's disappeared along with zines and such. Yeah, I mean, once, once you're in the streaming, you know, then the package becomes... I mean, I think it's coming back, isn't it? I think there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of people buying vinyl now for whatever. I'm not sure. I think it's probably even more now, and more important, because if you're going to buy a record, it certainly isn't to listen to the songs on a record, is it? You don't need to buy the album to listen to it. So, so if the album isn't, aesthetically pleasing or whatever then why would you do it I mean it becomes a bit like stamp collecting I suppose but um, but no I think that's probably coming back a bit now the design has to be important but it, it was gone wasn't it I think I mean CDs were intrinsically ugly things anyway weren't they I think mm. and I think you know the booklet not everyone wants to spend their time no. reading the time and it's, it's, that, it's that bloody big isn't it you know, but, but, and again, this is old fat. So it's, you, know, <laughs> you buy an album, and you, there's plenty to read on the bus on the way home. You know, exactly. Yeah. I, I saw a thing years ago when you know the resurgence of vinyl, and there was someone who didn't have a record player, but he would go to H and B and buy records yeah. because, like you say, aesthetically, it's. I can see that. I can see that makes perfect sense to be honest because you don't really need to listen to them. On, I mean, I, I know people talk about the sound and the warmth and all that kind of thing. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a bit of that where it's, they, they talk themselves into it. Yeah, I think as well. Unless you're a Herbert, no offense to listeners. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just inherited our speakers from my girlfriend's dad. But um, in the rec, uh, sorry, in the book, leave the capital. You said that they were the Buzzcocks were clearly never meant to be an '80s band because they were they were getting up towards that period of yeah. releasing their fourth album and things were starting, the wind yeah, was yeah. kind of coming off. What was going on in that time period and what was the band looking like as they geared towards their fourth record? Well, I, I think I think what happened was Martin Russian, who was the producer, the, the other fifth member of the band, <laughs> more fifth members than there was the Beatles, but um, I think he despaired of making another guitar album, I think. And I think Pete was, but Pete was really struggling. You know, he get he had a lot of mental health problems towards the end of the well, all the way through the band in a lot of ways. So I don't think there was the well the will amongst the five of them to sort it out. I, think, um, I mean, Pete it was a little underhanded, really. Pete went off to write with Martin Rushin and then suddenly realised, well, we, could, we don't need the you know because that was just as Martin Rushin had built his own studio and he was just a 
before. I mean, a lot of, if you know, like Human League, Dare, a lot of the sounds on that were kind of sounds he'd worked out with PCL making Homo Sapiens. That was because that was how they, that was like the first record they did together, which was electronic. You know, started off as demo to Buzzcocks, but then very quickly became clear that these are finished tracks, these. And it was a way for Pete to get away from the pressure of being in a band. Because again, one of the things about bands from that time, the same for the Clash, same for the Sex Pistols, is they're really unhealthy the way they worked. You know, they never had a day off. You know, you, you, you see it in that, that you read anything about the Clash or Buscox, you know, I know they had two days off here, so then they did a appeal session, day off here, they're in the studio, you know, and then it's just, it's not right really, you know, and you know, that's the idea of taking time off was, because obviously the record label must have thought, we're getting a year out of these guys, tops, we want, we want to get as much as we can get out of these. We've got a good thing going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, the, they didn't learn the lesson for a long time, and they probably still haven't. You know, they're still doing, you know, still doing it to one direction or whatever. They, you know, run them into the ground because they think, well, we'll get everything we can out of them here, and it's it's a, it's really unhealthy and it's not good. It's kind of ends up killing the the, the fast, the killing the golden goose, if you like. Yeah. So yeah, I think it was a, the thing about Buscock is I think that their sound is so set it was difficult to get out of that. You know, he, I think Pete thought to carry on and make expand this musical and what's the palette mm. he couldn't do it within the within the confines of the group because all buscot records sound like buscot records yeah yeah whereas i think one of the reasons for that is because the first album is so well produced and so well thought out whereas the clash's first album it's a bit lo-fi and a bit and they had somewhere to go i think sex pistols never done another album in a minute but um so the clash had somewhere to go from whereas buscot's the sound was so well refined at the first album that it was difficult then to say, well, 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 you know, well, sounds like something else. And they did try it, you know, there's keyboards on the last singles and a bit of brass, but it just sounds like Buscox with keyboards and a bit of brass on it. <laughs> Which, yeah, it can, uh, sounds like it could be a killer for a band. Mm. So off the back of your two books and you've got this forthcoming book with the Buscox, mm-hmm. is there, I appreciate, you know, it's not even come out yet, but is there... A scene or a band, you know, that maybe has been overlooked that you're looking towards in the future, or no, I don't think. Well, I'm sure there are plenty of bands that have been seen and scenes that have been overlooked, but I have no. I, mean, I had a burning desire to write this one when I was first asked by Root if what book you'd like to write, leave the capital was it? I wanted to write about that whole Manchester, the fact that recording moved, could be moved to Manchester and you could trace it back to people who did it, you know, and that you know, ten CC. And the people who were in Ten CC brought the studios out of London, and I thought that's a massive story to tell. That's the one I want to tell. Uh, have a bleeding guest remain motivation for that is that I didn't want anybody else to write it. Ruth said, <laughs> "Do you think there's a space for like you know thirty three and a third? Do yeah, yeah, say, yeah. There should be yeah. one of our hex. We're thinking of doing this, and I thought I don't want anybody else to write this. I, I want to write this book. So that was I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me, but once it was tabled that someone was going to write it, I thought that what I want that to be. But then this one was. You're the one that this is a band I want to write about. So you know, there's no there's no other. I don't think there's another band that I would I would like to say we should these should be bigger than they are. I don't think so. No, Buscotch was a big one for me because you can't do it. It's like um, people have said you should write another book like Have a Bleeding Guest, but the whole point of Have a Bleeding Guest is, is I think it's the most important one. So you can't then you know oh here's the other one that's really important. You know it was kind of a thing for me that. And the same with Buscock, so I couldn't write. There, there is no band I could write that intensely about, or would want to, really. There's plenty of other bands I like. There's plenty of other bands. 
who probably in the cold light of day, well, not probably, in the cold light of day, are better than Buscocks in some ways, but they're not my band, you know. And that's where it comes in from what we started with, the passion. Yes, is, that's you know, it. Evident, yeah. 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 And one, one final thing, you, I think you mentioned it in your first answer, or one of, one of the initial um, things you said, the gobbing in punk. I, yeah. never, I never understood it, and there was obviously that famous story, I think, about Joe Strummer who got quite yeah, ill, yeah, I think. Yeah. What was the... I, I, well, depends on... People say that Captain Sensible started it, but there's a big difference between one person in a band of four spitting and the whole audience hails of gob for the whole of the gig. You know, It, it was disgusting. It was one of them. It's a bit like, you know, you change the law and you think... You know, that wasn't that was just mad. like smoking in pubs, like you know, and you when it goes, and you think that was wasn't that really weird? That but but when once it stopped the spitting it, and you start thinking, well, what was that? And it wasn't it wasn't like I'm spitting at you because I think you're crap. It was I'm spitting at you because I think you're great. You know, which is just I mean, this the the, the I watched lots of video, and there's there's a film of um, penetration playing in Manchester, and she's. She stood at the front singing, and there's people spitting, throwing beer. At. There's one guy, he all the way through, he's just throwing little bits of beer. And he thinks, that bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was, it, it, it lasted a couple of years. That you know, where it just hails of gob. It was, just, oh man, it was just disgusting, <laughs> absolutely horrible. A disgusting note to end on. Thank yeah, you very yeah. Much, I mean, one of the good reasons for being a drummer, I think. I, think, I couldn't reach it. <laughs>